Hi everyone and thank you so much for joining us here on This Week in Iowa and we are starting this show with Pat Reinard with the Iowa Starting Line, a yeah. Democratic operative here in our state talking um, about what happened with the debate. So mm -hmm. thank you so much Pat yeah, for being absolutely. with us. Um, okay, so you were there watching the debate with Iowans. Give me your just quick reaction. Sure, well I, th I thought it was a really interesting debate, a much more substantive one and one that saw a lot of new dynamics with people, uh, a lot more candidates focusing on Elizabeth Warren mm -hmm. since you know she's now uh, leading in a lot of different polls and so whenever that happens you get all the attacks. Um, it was, um, you know, I, I thought most of the voters that we talked with thought it was pretty informative. It was interesting. One of the takeaways that a number of folks had was that Warren's kind of evasiveness on whether she was going to raise taxes or not to help pay for a Medicare for All uh, plan. That kind of unnerved some folks, even some folks who were uh, supporting Warren. But I also got the sense it wasn't that big a deal that it was going to, you know, drastically change things. Okay, so Biden, Warren, and Sanders did kind of, they're the top three. Yeah. They got the most time. Do you think that's fair? It, no, but <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's, that is how it is. Uh, you, know, you feel bad for someone like Tom Steyer, who I think only got seven minutes and 13 seconds right. in after uh, spending all that money to help get on the stage. Um, but I think overall that, you know, uh, well, I, I, I think it's odd that we have 12 people up there all at once. I personally prefer two nights of six, half half, but, yeah. you know, come, come the next one, November, I think we'll probably have uh, some other dropouts and some other people just not make it. Okay, so... Um, there's been a lot of discussion about electability mm -hmm. and Warren's electability. Mm -hmm. What do you think that centers on? I've heard some people say that that's a sexist thing to be saying, that she's not electable. Others are saying, well, people said Barack Obama wasn't electable. Yeah. They said Donald Trump wasn't electable. So what are your thoughts on electability? I think one of the big things that Democrats are looking at this year in terms of electability is who can stand up to a punch. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why people have not, Democrats as a whole, have not been as concerned of how negative some of these debates have been, the back and forth have been during them because they want to see how someone stands up under fire because whatever they get during these uh, uh, Democratic debates from fellow Democrats is, is going to pale in comparison to what Donald Trump throws at them in the general election. So aside from personality and ideology. I think a lot of people are just looking for toughness. But do you think that it's a bad thing that the Democrats are all fighting amongst each other in such a negative way to bring each other down? Is that bad for the party in general? Um, it, sometimes it can have some drawbacks, but I think overall this year there hasn't been any like uh, super punishing blows on anyone. I, I think one of the things that people should watch out for is building up certain cynicism among uh, some of the candidates who might end up winning, um, that just because your views don't align 100% with a, one of the Democrats, that if it's only 90 or 80% means that, oh, well, we shouldn't even support them in the general election. I think that's something always to, to have some concern over. I don't think we've gotten to that level yet, though. All right, Pat, as always, I really yeah. appreciate your time. Thank Good you so much you. for being with us, and congratu congratulations Thank on the you. new addition to yeah. your family. Thanks. All right, let's take a short break, everybody. But when we come back, Congresswoman Cindy Axey joins us in studio to talk trade. Welcome back, everyone. We are joined now by Congresswoman Cindy Axney, and we are here to talk about a whole bunch of things, but really just to get an update of what's going on in Washington as you are heading back there. Congresswoman, thank you so much for speaking with me. My pleasure. Um, okay, I want to start talking about trade and the USMCA. We've seen another renewed effort uh, to see this agreement passed, but Republicans are blaming Democrats in the House, saying that Democrats are the reason it's not getting passed. So what is happening? 
as a congresswoman who's there on the front lines. Tell us why the USMCA hasn't passed the House, what needs to happen, and what's missing, or if there are parts of it that people disagree with. Well, for, thank you so much for uh, bringing up the USMCA. It's incredibly important to Iowa and this country that we pass the USMCA. Where we're at is that the Democratic uh, House and Working Group did not receive uh, the documents until the beginning of July. So uh, contrary to what some have heard, uh, it's not the Democratic House that's keeping this from coming to a vote. Uh, the Democratic House just received it at the beginning of July. At that point, the working group uh, that is in Ways and Means is working with the Republican working group as well to finalize the agreement. Okay. So there's two key pieces that are being worked on. I think the agriculture piece looks great. The manufacturing piece looks good. I wish we could have pulled the agriculture piece out and just voted on that. Uh, but we're fine-tuning two pieces, biologics, pharmaceuticals, and regulatory oversight of labor and environmental standards, uh, particularly with Mexico. They're both really important. Uh, and, and actually, these were two pieces that weren't included in NAFTA. So one of the problems with NAFTA is that we had put in, uh, you know, la expected labor regulations, but no regulatory oversight to ensure that those labor and environmental standards were followed in Mexico. So when we're in a trade agreement with another country, they've got to be on the a same level playing field that we are when it comes to, uh, you know, in, in, uh, labor standards and environmental standards. If they aren't, they will undercut our pricing. They can pay people less. This leads to outsourcing jobs outside of the United States to Mexico. We want to keep jobs here. And certainly we don't want to undercut the prices that we can sell our goods at. So that piece is being worked on. The second is biologics pharmaceutical. These are, uh, these are uh, pharma that's made from uh, human genomes, like diabetes insulin. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of folks uh, take these types of drugs. They constitute a small amount of drugs that are taken, but a very large part of the cost. And the way that this is, has been put into USMCA is a good reason. It protects intellectual patents. We want to protect our intellectual, intellectual property when it comes to uh, developing drugs. But this would strap us from being able to negotiate the cost of those drugs for a decade plus, which is part of the problem that we have right now with why our prescription drugs are so high in this country. We have developed trade agreements with other countries, giving them better opportunities to lower the cost of their prescription drugs that they buy from us than we have from our, in, in America. So we're going to fix that with this to make sure that we can negotiate the cost of those prescription drugs, because right now the way it's written, it would allow those companies to hold that patent for at least a decade and then extend it, never letting generics come to market. But three and a half months sounds like a lot of time to be able to come up with some of those things and give some answers to farmers. I have been on top of this every <laughs> step of the way. And as a matter of fact, I had a private meeting with the speaker, and then I spoke with the subcommittee chair of trade. Both have given me uh, the, the assurance that we're going to get this done this year. Okay. I don't have a guaranteed date on that, mm -hmm. but they both feel very confident. that They know how important this is. We all know how important this is for our country and for our state. Now, Congressman, I always want more time with you, but we only have time for probably one more topic. And I'd like to talk about the recent roundtable that you had with the FCC and uh, regarding rural broadband, because this is an issue that leads to jobs for rural America, that leads to health care for rural America. It's all kind of tied into rural broadband and having access to allowing these areas to thrive. So what happened in that roundtable, and what do you see being the next steps? We held two roundtables, one in Indianola and one in Winterset, with local economic development folks, uh, certainly with rural telecoms, with the commissioner. I was grateful to have her come out here, mm -hmm. uh, and other folks. You know, uh, Iowa is a really good example of the, where the last mile needs to be met.
internet for people who need uh, broad access to the internet. We need to lay fiber. Everybody needs to have broadband. Uh, and we have pieces, select pieces in almost every county that if we just close that gap, everyone would have it. Uh, the two key pieces that came out of that, uh, the, the, uh, the fact that we have bad maps, our, our mapping right. is incorrect. The Federal Communications Commission um, has, their maps are not appropriate. So they're saying that we've got 90% connectivity not plus here case. in Iowa. Yeah. Now I've talked with Microsoft. Microsoft is really uh, an, an interesting uh, way that, to get information for this because they see people's load times and they're on everybody's computers. So they can actually see how long it takes for people to get to the internet. So they have a better understanding mm -hmm. of, of what's going on out there uh, from from this perspective, they say we're closer, you know, to 30% of the of our state being covered. So we've got to fix the mapping, and we've got to get the money. There's funding pockets at federal, state, at multiple levels. We've got to coordinate that to make this happen. Welcome back, everyone. We're joined now by Grant Kimberly, who is here with the Iowa Soybean Association, here because the APA said this week that they will not be mandating 15 billion gallons of biofuels to be mixed. And uh, farmers are mad. Yeah, that's right, uh, because we thought we had a deal. Uh, the president and our uh, Iowa senators, uh, Grassley and Ernst, and Iowa Governor Reynolds and Secretary Agriculture Nag had, uh, had discussions with the White House in early October, and we had a deal that uh, they would fully reallocate actual gallons uh, from the small refinery exemptions over the last three years and prospectively account for those going forward. So what was the change? So the change in, the, in what EPA has proposed in this uh, rulemaking process is that they're going to use Department of Energy estimates from the past, uh, which are much, much lower than the actual exempted gallons over the last three years. And what's ironic about this whole thing is that the EPA has has chosen to ignore those uh, recommendations from the Department of Energy in the past anyway. So why all of a sudden would we trust that they're now going to follow through on that going forward? So you can see where we're very concerned about this. Obviously, having this back and forth is frustrating, but what does it mean for you? What does it mean for Iowa farmers? What it, does it mean for Iowa's economy, and why should people at home care? Well, the biodiesel industry is a very important part of the overall agriculture economy in Iowa and Iowa's economy. Iowa's economy is impacted by agriculture dramatically. Iowa is the leading producer of biodiesel. We have 11 plants in the state. One of those plants now shut down because of these exemptions. Um, and so uh, if, if we don't get these uh, reallocated back in there, we're not going to see this plant reopen. We're not going to see other plants uh, thrive. And that means lower demand for feedstocks like soybean oil, uh, which and translates back to prices for farmers, which biodiesel adds about 60 to 90 cents a bushel to the price of soybeans. And then that goes back into the general economy and farmers aren't gonna buy new tractors, they're not gonna buy other pieces of equipment and, and that will translate into jobs for everyday Iowans. So you received this promise from President Trump and then the EPA is backing away from that promise, but the EPA is part of the Trump administration. So who is to blame here and who can fix this? Well, right now, the way we're looking at this, we know that the president um, made, a, made a commitment to our uh, Iowa political champions, and we're very grateful for that. Um, and the EPA has come out under Administrator Wheeler um, with this proposed rule. And so well, right now, we're saying that Administrator Wheeler and the EPA needs to fix this, uh, and, and this, is, this is something that they need to do. Now, ultimately, uh, this comes back to uh, the administration, but uh, right now, this is EPA's issue, and they 
they've they've taken something that we thought was certain and made it very uncertain. But President Trump hasn't responded since the EPA came out and said this. We haven't heard anything yet on that, but we have heard from our Iowa political champions who have who understand uh, that uh, there is a reason to be skeptical of the EPA mm -hmm. uh, in this case and, and Administrator Wheeler, uh, and they're very much going to be uh, re-engaging again with uh, the White House and others to to make sure this is done right, and we'll do that as well as an industry and as farmers during this comment period that we have. So you have until the end of October, correct? Mm -hmm. And that's when there will be a meeting. So what can Iowans at home do? What can you guys be doing? Obviously you can call your lawmakers, but the lawmakers are doing what they can. Mm -hmm. There'll be a comment period where you can actually submit comments online, and we'll have information on the biodiesel.org website, uh, the National Biodiesel Board, where you can submit comments to the EPA and, and show support for Iowa's biodiesel industry and Iowa's soybean farmers. Okay, so what's your message to other Iowans, to your fellow Iowans who are watching this thinking, gosh, what on earth? You know, our message is that we need the administration to hold fast to the deal that was that was made here in in the earlier this month, and we need to make sure that we see this industry continue to grow and thrive. We need certainty so the marketplace can continue to grow, and we can have demand for agriculture products like soybeans and corn and and everything else. And and this is what we want to have happen. We just want certainty, and uh, we want we want the marketplace to be able to move forward after this. Doesn't seem like too much to ask, does it? It doesn't. It's very straightforward. Uh, we thought we had a deal, and we we. We believe we still do have that, and we have to just convey that we want to, we want the deal based off of the actual exempted gallons, not past estimates of exempted gallons. So make sure that we go off of what actually has happened. Okay, great. Kimberly, thank you so thank much you so for much. your time. I really appreciate thank you. you making the trek down here, especially during harvest, you yeah. know, how busy you are. Yes, it's a very busy time of the year. <laughs> not the time to be messing around no. with this stuff, right? Yep. That's what we want to be concentrating yeah. on is our harvest right now. Yeah, thank you for your time, yeah, Grant. Thank you. We'll take a short break, everyone. Coming up next, she's running in District 2 for the open seat. Her priorities when we come back. Welcome back, everyone. We are joined now by State Senator Marionette Miller-Meeks, who is also running for Congressional District 2. Senator uh, Meeks, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so let's talk about your decision to run. Why decide to run for District 2? Well, it was an interesting dynamic finishing up the Senate uh, session, mm -hmm. so it was my first legislative session, and then going back to my regular job, which I had been doing only on Fridays through session, and my patients started asking me if I was going to run, and then I had people ask me if I was going to run, so I really needed to kind of sit back and look at the race and look at what was happening. And what I saw was people really feel that their federal government has given up on them. They've quit fighting for Iowans, and the things that they would point out to me is that, you know, that uh, they don't feel that their representatives are accessible to them. And they, you know, they're wondering what's happening on the trade deals and why can't we get any traction on the USMCA? Why can't we get any traction or anything done on, you know, drug pricing, which we had done in the Senate. So we had passed uh, uh, bipartisan legislation, passed, uh, I think, almost unanimously on looking at pharmacy benefit managers and having uh, all of the rebates. Uh, more transparent, they have to be recorded to the insurance division, and that's trying to get a handle on prescription drug prices and what we can do to make it more affordable. And so they look at those things, things that affect them every single day, bread and butter issues, and they don't see their legislature or you know the Congress doing anything about those issues. So I had people approaching me, asking me about it, I looked at it, um, and then I looked at uh, you know uh, presidential debates where 
people want to you know give access to health care to illegal aliens where they want to get rid of uh, you know private health insurance and I finally decided these are issues that are important to me um, that I may have a skill set that's helpful it may be able to serve people not only in my district but throughout the state and sometimes you have to be willing to sacrifice your own comfort to do what you think is, is better for people and there seemed to be wide, widespread support for me running. Now you mentioned your day job and uh, <laughs> that you have patients and that's because you're an ophthalmologist so do you think that your healthcare background has shaped how you feel about some of those healthcare issues? Absolutely. I think having been both a nurse and a physician, probably one of your most important skill sets or attributes is to listen. So you have to be able to listen, then you take all of that information, you assim assimilate it, you dissect through it, and then you have to come up and make a decision. And I think that's a skill set that we definitely need in Congress. You need to be able to read through a lot of information, put it together, ascertain where the truth is, meet with all sides, and then come together and look at what's the intended consequences of doing something, what's the unintended consequences of doing that, and then go forward with legislation that helps the broad swath of people. We certainly did that um, in our Senate session and as Chair of Human Resources. And I think you can bring that same skill set forward, uh, and I think we can do a lot of good in Congress and serve people. But you've run for this seat before and have not been successful. So what do you think has changed from those times to now? Of course, you don't have an incumbent for this race as Dave Loebsack is stepping down. So I think certainly having an open seat is, is one of those things that makes it um, you know, a more even playing field. We know that incumbents win the vast majority of times. But I also think it's a different time. Um, when we had the Affordable Care Act go through, you know, insurance premiums were supposed to go down, there was more access to care. We have seen more access to care, but who thought in 2020 we'd still be talking, or 2019, still be talking about health care as an issue and the cost of health care. So I think the affordability, accessibility, giving people's choice, um, seeing what's happening in our economy and trade issues, people really want someone that's going to go fight for them and make sure that Congress does its job and what we sent them there to do. But before you get to 2020 and get to the election in November, you have to get through a primary first. So how, does, how are you preparing for that primary, and how do you feel like you match up against your opponent, who is a former congressman? Well, I think a former congressman from Illinois has to prove to Iowans that they're going to serve the best interest of Iowans. I have very deep roots in Iowa. I've uh, been here. My uh, youngest, my daughter, was born here in Iowa. I've practiced here. I've been on faculty at the University of Michigan. I was, uh, you know, the first woman president of the Iowa Medical Society. So I think I have deep roots here. I have name recognition that's throughout the district. And ultimately, be it a primary or a general election, you have to be accessible, meet with people, listen to people, share your ideas with them, how you plan to, you know, put good policy forward that serves them, and then, you know, make the case for why you're the best person for this job interview. Okay, and what do you think sets you apart specifically, other than being having roots here from Bobby Schilling? Well, I think the, the fact that I'm a long-term Iowan, that I've worked here, I've been in Iowa, uh, that I know health care, I've been a small business owner as well, um, a military veteran of 24 years, both active duty and reserve service, so I have a long uh, skill set and experiential background that helps prepare me for this role. Before we go, we have a quick note on one of our analysts from our congressional race discussion last week. We talked about all four congressional races and the presidential race. Now, in an effort to have full transparency, Craig Robinson did receive a payment to print and distribute mailers for Bobby Schilling that were written and designed by the campaign, not Robinson.
Thank you for listening to the This Week in Iowa podcast. You can find the This Week in Iowa podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, so be sure to subscribe now. You can also watch This Week in Iowa every Sunday at 9 a.m. on Local 5. For the latest in Iowa political news, follow This Week in Iowa on Twitter or visit weareiowa.com.